Remember when, at the beginning of the pandemic, President Donald Trump suggested disinfectant might cure COVID? It just seemed nuts. Like, no one would do that, right? Turns out, in the dark corners of the internet, a radical group made a fortune doing just that. They called it Miracle Mineral Solution. Join me for Smokescreen Deadly Cure. I'm Kristen V. Brown, your host and a reporter for Bloomberg. From Neon Hum, Sony Music Entertainment, and Bloomberg, Smokescreen Deadly Cure is available now. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes now or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Deadly Dose, hosted by Harini Bott and Megan Gesner. So this is going to be a brand new story. And it literally I've been working on the story for weeks because I was going to originally do this for um, Today Learn Science. But then I was like, this is too long for that whole situation. So I'm going to take it to the podcast. This is going to be another one of those where like some crazy stuff happened and it got enacted into law. So another oopsie. <laughs> oh, love these Yay! stories. It's an origin story, folks. Strap in. Get ready. We're going to start off with a poem. A poem. It's called, I Wonder What's In It. Okay. <laughs> it says, it starts, we sit at a table Ooh. delightfully spread and teeming with good things to eat and daintily finger the cream tinted bread just needing to make it complete. A film of the butter so yellow and sweet well suited to make every minute a dream of delight. And yet, while we eat, we cannot help asking, what's in it? The wine that you drink never heard of a grape, but of tannin and coal tar is made. But you could not be certain except for their shape that the eggs by a chicken were laid. And the salad which bears such an innocent look in whispers of fields that are green is covered with germs, each armed with a hook to grapple with liver and spleen. The banquet, how fine, don't begin it. Till you think of the past and the future and sigh. How I wonder, how I wonder what's in it. Very interesting. I will say the part about the fingering the bread <laughs> kept me distracted we are children. for a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I'm hearing about I'm hearing about germs and food and obviously mm-hmm. what goes into our food. So... Is Megan gonna guess? No, I'm not going to guess. I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I don't want to build a bad. I know. I know. Okay. Well, I did preface, and I'll preface this for all of you, Poison Pals. If you are listening to this episode and you have not eaten yet, I highly recommend you eat and then listen to this podcast. Perhaps depending on who you are. Okay. Good. I ended up. I did end up eating. Harini sent me a text before (laughs) our recording, and she's like, "You better eat breakfast." And I was like, "Hemming and hawing," and then. And then I was like, okay, I'll, I'll make make some food. So Perfect. I've I've got a Perfect. tummy that is content. Oh, no I think that is true because Megan's like, okay, maybe I'll see you as a challenge. <laughs> I was like, sure, sure, we can do that too. <laughs> okay. Anyways, let's let's get into it. <clears throat> yeah. In 1881, Harvey Wiley was working alone in a lab at Purdue when he became obsessed with analyzing food products and isolating compounds and chemicals from said f- food products. 
Earlier that year, the Indiana State Board of Health asked Wiley to analyze commercially sold honey and syrup on their behalf. So Wiley collected samples from across Indiana and was shocked to find out that up to 90% of the honey and syrup products were fake, just blanket fake. The honey was tinted corn syrup with sometimes real honeycomb thrown in to look like real honey. And sometimes even the honeycomb was fake. It was just a paraffin wax mold of real honeycomb. Mm. At the turn of the century, the food product industry in the United States was the wild, wild west. Anything went because the food industry was completely unregulated. You can bet that almost anything sweet was corn syrup, maple syrup, honey, jam, etc. Black pepper was just dust from the floor, literally. (laughs) Flour was filled with chemicals Mm. to fill up the bag and crushed rocks to make it look white. Tea leaves were just regular ass dried leaves that were painted to look black or brown as needed. And there is no way to know what was in your food or what you were eating because food products at the time were not required to label or list any of the ingredients. Wiley thinks for a moment, if this is happening for honey and maple syrup across the state of Indiana, it must also be happening across the United States. All of this was happening at a very critical time in U.S. history. The late 19th century was when the U.S. was experiencing their second industrial revolution, and it was a time when Wiley's chosen field of chemistry was just starting to begin. The second industrial revolution saw rapid advances in steel, chemicals, electricity, which in turn led to mass-produced consumer goods. So we've got ideas, news, people via radio, telegraph, and train. So essentially, the U.S. just got a whole lot smaller and faster. During the first industrial revolution, more people moved away from farmland. So they're not farming as much anymore, and they move into the big cities, which meant they weren't growing their own food anymore or churning their own butter from the cows on their land. Produce and dairy thus had to travel across the state to the big cities, but this was before refrigeration. So the milk almost always arrived spoiled. Now, with the second industrial revolution, long-distance transportation with steel railroad tracks, they cut through mountains and plains to now connect the states, and this opened up America's resources to itself as well as the world. There were now 35,000 miles of railroad lines in 1865, and in 1916, there was 254,000 miles of railroad lines. So we really just like upped the ante. For the very first time, goods from the West Coast could be sent to the East Coast and vice versa. So this marked a significant change of being able to buy consumer products instead of making them at home. So items like soap and butter and clothing even that used to be made at home were now being made in factories. Factories employed both men and women who were able to make money to then buy these products. So it became this whole system, which we are still doing today, obviously. So this is really the first time in the U.S. that we see big consumer food brands like Heinz, Nabisco, Pillsbury. But it wasn't just produce and dairy. Meat also became industrialized. And at one point, around 90% of the U.S.'s U.S. manufactured meat was coming from just two companies, Armour and Swift. This isn't anything new, though. The Chicago slaughterhouses were literally like a well-oiled machine with their butcher assembly lines. In fact, 
and this was news to me, Henry Ford modeled his car assembly lines for the Model T after the slaughterhouses of Chicago. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you can process and manufacture food all day long, but if it gets packaged in the Midwest and arrives via train to New York City completely rancid, it's useless. So that's when the food industry really turned to chemists to find a solution. This entire thing started out in a very pure way in the means like it just started out as innovation and excitement by chemists to finally dip into the periodic table of elements to preserve food for Americans. So essentially earlier during the first industrial revolution, chemists developed preservatives like formaldehyde and boric acid. Formaldehyde was huge, 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 like so popular as a preservative. And this really came on the scene during the Civil War because they just needed one go-to chemical to preserve all these dead bodies and essentially became the number one choice for embalming. In their eyes, like for me, it makes sense. They, You see that formaldehyde does such an amazing job at preserving human bodies, so why not human food? So they start putting formaldehyde in everything. With these preservatives, milk didn't go rancid and meat didn't spoil. It was literally a miracle for them. Enterprising chemical scientists developed preservatives that kept food fresh for days, sometimes even weeks. And one of these chemicals was copper sulfate. Copper sulfate was used heavily during this time for green beans to keep beans looking green even when it was canned. So copper sulfate was added to peas and other green produce to keep the produce looking verdant and fresh. It literally just looks like it's just copper and it just it's like food coloring, but yeah. it's copper. Yeah. It's <laughs> copper metal. turns things green. It it's green, green when it, it oxidizes. We're eating pennies. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're literally I was, yes, we're eating pennies. <laughs> we're eating the Statue of Liberty, all of the above. <laughs> By the late 19th century, Americans were consuming food laced with preservatives for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Americans lost the direct connection that they had with their food when they farmed to live off the land. And honestly, when I was doing this story, it freaked me out a little bit because, like, it's not much different to today. Like, I don't, like, obviously, food is safe. I can definitely go to the grocery store, buy things, and trust that I'm not going to get sick from it most of the times, but I also don't know where the heck my food is coming from or what's in it. Right. Like I can look at the back of the label and like do the research, but ultimately I don't know which farm my milk is coming from or my eggs or whatever. Mm -hmm. Americans didn't know where the food was coming from. And these chemical preservatives were harmful to the body. And people didn't know that except for Harvey Wiley. Wiley grew up on a farm in Indiana and his family grew their own food for as long as he could remember. He knew what real food was and what it tasted like, so he made it his mission to ensure all of America did too. After graduating with a degree in chemistry and medicine from Harvard, Wiley went to Europe where he took an interest in their food chemistry reform. He followed the Bradford poisoning case in England. That's another uh, case I wanted to do. It's uh, I think I talked about it. Yes. The Bradford Bradford poisoning case in England where more than 20 people died from mm. arsenic-laced food coloring and candy. It was mostly children yeah. who died. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which prompted legislation against certain food additives. Similarly, in France, salicylic acid was banned as preservative in wine after chemists learned of its negative effects. But here's what's hilarious about all of this. So France, Germany, pretty much all of Europe had banned certain things like boric acid, formaldehyde, and salicylic acid. 
but they knew the U.S. didn't ban any of those things. Like, again, it was like the wild, wild west. So what they ended up doing is they would put salicylic acid in French wine that was getting shipped to the U.S. They would put salicylic acid in German beer that was getting shipped to the U.S. because they knew that there was no ban. But for their own people, they would never even touch that kind of stuff. I feel like that's still happening today, though. Like, there's so many things that are not banned in the U.S. that are banned in other countries. Right. So food analysis techniques to detect and prevent harmful additives was well underway in Europe, but the U.S. was not like anywhere near that type of level for food manufacturing. There was zero regulation or requirements to disclose ingredients or be truthful in labeling advertisements. So there was labeling ad and ads, but they are just saying willy-nilly whatever they wanted to say. Companies would say just about anything on their food products to get consumers to buy it, even if it was completely untrue. Mm -hmm. For this reason, there were so many bans on the food importation from the U.S. to Europe because Europe didn't trust what American food manufacturers were putting in their food products. Wow. For a while, nothing changed because these big food manufacturers would pay large sums of money to influential people in the government to ensure it stayed that way. So – Wiley brought back with him from Europe the equipment that he used to analyze food products to the U.S. He was determined to find out what was hiding behind these shiny, colorful labeling. And he quickly found three different preservatives in American food, formaldehyde, sodium benzenate, and borax. Mm. This discovery didn't sit well with Wiley because Americans, again, had no idea that they were eating this. And per current laws, the food manufacturers had no need to tell them. And I think it's important to note at this point, Wiley had no problems with the idea that food manufacturers use these types of preservatives. He's like, it's fine if you guys are going to use this, but you have to at least disclose it to the public. So that way the public at least has the freedom to choose whether they want to buy your product or not. Right. So that's kind of like his stance on it at this point. Mm -hmm. So when Indiana asked Wiley to publish his findings on honey and maple syrup, both industries immediately turned on Wiley, even going so far as to print smear campaigns against him in the papers. They were angry because Wiley was exposing what had been for so long a well-kept secret. Interestingly, beekeepers who were making real honey, were also upset because they felt Wiley's reports cast an overall shadow on honey. His outspoken and often undiplomatic way of speaking put him in the doghouse with Purdue, and by 1882, it was clear he was no longer welcome as faculty. He was just rocking too many boats. Wow. A year later, Wiley accepted a position as the new chief department division of chemistry at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA. Just quick background, the USDA was created by President Lincoln in 1862 as a way to provide support to U.S. farmers. And Wiley's first project in his new role was to launch a large-scale study on analyzing American food. But he had to be careful because he was now in a government organization. He was literally in their house, and mm -hmm. he couldn't rock the boat in the house of government. And he was also in the palms of people who were being paid off by the same people he planned to investigate. Right. But Wiley did not care. He was not that kind of guy. He was ready to fight. And the first item on his list to investigate was milk, a staple in the American diet and vulnerable to adulteration. The problem was that milk wasn't cheap. It wasn't cheap if you weren't literally milking it off of your own cow. So milk manufacturers came up with their own methods to drive the cost of milk down. When Wiley started his study in 1885, milk manufacturers had already streamlined their formula. 
they would put one pint of warm water for every quart of milk. Mm -hmm. But this concoction would make the milk have like a bluish tinge to it. So to keep it looking milky white, manufacturers would add plaster of Paris or chalk. For consumers who expected a layer of cream at the top, because like fresh milk would have like that little skim of milk or cream of milk at the top, manufacturers would add – this is where it gets gross. Manufacturers would add a scoop of pureed calf brains. Interesting. I'm surprised they went with brains. I would have thought like, (laughs) you know, like um, some other very uh, cheaper animal fat, like pig fat or something. But I don't know. Yeah. That was unexpected. I'm surprised about brains. Huh. Yeah, that's nasty. But it did stop there. The sanitation around and in milk factories was just abysmal. Oftentimes, the milk would be open buckets exposed to whatever virus or bacteria that wanted to take up residence in it. Mm. This caused a lot of disease in consumers or just caused Mm -hmm. rotten milk. Mm -hmm. One milk sample had worms at the bottom of the bottles. So, yeah. So to hide the spoiled milk and give it the appearance of being fresh, manufacturers added formaldehyde. And it worked really well because mm. formaldehyde is known as, you know, as an embalming agent, but it's also sweet. Mm. So adding it to milk not only preserved it, but it masked that sour taste of spoiled milk. But formaldehyde is toxic to humans, and soon the milk was killing people, mostly children too. Thousands of children died every year, but since there were no regulations or laws on this, no milk manufacturers were held accountable. Interesting. From there, Wiley analyzed spices, coffee, canned vegetables, etc., and was consistently floored by what he found. For example, coffee barely had coffee in it. Instead, the favorite morning brew consisted mostly of sawdust, chicory, and ash. Like, Mm. I don't... Like, how do people not notice the difference? Or maybe they... I don't know. I don't know. I'm curious to know chicory. I know that chicory is used in actual coffee, like in... New Orleans as like a flavoring, but I don't know what it is exactly. Yeah, but I'm like the coffee bean has such a distinct flavor. Right. And yeah, I'm curious how they were making it taste like coffee. <laughs> I know. Unless unless at a certain point they just didn't care. Yeah, they didn't care. <laughs> it just needs- and then, you know, it's like those Amazon reviews where you go onto a product and they're like, they must have changed the formula. It's not the same. That's probably what the people were saying <laughs> yeah. back in the day, but they were still buying it and we're just yes. like, this is, I guess this is all we have. Yeah, Exactly. And it, like, you'll kind of get the gist of it. For me, it seems like they didn't really care about the taste. It was all about the appearance. As long mm. as it looked like what it was supposed right. to look like, people would buy it, right? Right. Like it's a psychological okay well it looks right. like the coffee doesn't taste right. the same but that's what it's being sold to Different me as formula. so i'm not gonna question it yeah yeah exactly so wiley started to post his findings in a series of scientific and federal papers called bulletin 13 like that's what he called it mm-hmm. groups who had vested interest avidly read wiley's bulletins from farmers and food scientists but that was about it no one else really read it Wiley realized that the majority of America wasn't taking heed of his bulletin warnings because most Americans had no idea that they needed to be wary of their food. Mm -hmm. So he decided he needed to get the U.S. consumer's attention as well as the government to enact change. 
But Walty's bulletins did ruffle feathers at the USDA where he was working and slowly Wiley noticed his research projects were being stifled. Mm -hmm. He already made enemies externally and now he was making enemies internally. And it was at this point that Wiley questioned his path and whether he wanted to continue. I have a question and we can totally Mm -hmm. edit it if this is accurate and you wanted it to be a surprise because I don't know how these things go. But is this yeah, yeah. what the Wiley Online Library is named after? Is it named after him? Oh, I don't know. Okay. I, that name keeps popping up. And then you're like, he created a bunch of like bulletins and research papers and like trying right. to get information out. And I'm like, well, the Wiley Online Library is all these scientific journals. So I'm going to look right. into that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah look into that. Because that'd be, that'd be fun tidbit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then in 1898, U.S. troops were sent to Cuba to fight in the Spanish-American War. And Armour and Swift, meatpacking companies, won lucrative government contracts to supply their meat to feed the military. So now this would be a test to see how, quote unquote, fresh their meat was. Predictably, it wasn't long until news traveled back that the canned meat being fed to U.S. soldiers was completely rancid. One army medic reports that when he opened one of the cans, it smelled like a human body that was rotting and putrefied, but had been preserved with formaldehyde. And I think that's quite literally what it was, except that it wasn't human, of course. The military does an internal investigation and concludes that everything was fine. However, the American public saw right through this blatant cover-up and began calling the whole thing the embalmed beef scandal. Mm. When the war was over, Congress held hearings on the spoiled meat. The star witness of these hearings was none other than Theodore Roosevelt, who was a New York governor at the time. Roosevelt was on the front lines in Cuba when he saw a soldier throwing away his meat rations. Then Roosevelt asked the soldier, like, why why are you not eating that? And the man said he couldn't. Mm. So Roosevelt picks up the can and he tries to eat some and he couldn't either. The can was full of a green slime and some other unmentionable and questionable things. And he went on to say in the hearings that he would rather have eaten his hat than eaten those military rations. (laughs) A very 1860s thing to say. I know. Well, his hat was probably made out of like authentic leather. So at least you could like chew on it a little. Megan, did you find anything? Yeah. Um, so the short answer is no. It This is um, okay. Wiley Online Library Source. It was created by Charles Wiley, who was a, a bookseller. Oh, that has nothing to do with science. <laughs> so they're just people in publishing. Mm-hmm. Anyways, okay. Back home, Wiley runs tests on canned beef for both military rations and from grocery stores across the country. Every can consisted of cheap cuts of meat, that were mostly decomposed and encased in a layer of fat. Mm. But nothing comes from these hearings, only awareness to the public that their meat was nasty. (laughs) I'm just laughing because it is like, yeah, it's awareness and it's like upsetting. But I know when you're in the position that the general public is, it's like, man, we know that this shit's gross. But what can we do? Like, this is all they're selling us, you know? Yeah. I know. Like, what are we supposed to do? Like, right. I can't go back to being a farmer. Yeah, what, like, what am I supposed uh, to do yeah, with that tough. information? <laughs> right, right. So pretty much every person in America is sick at a baseline at this point because the diet was so poor. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Although no legislation was being made, America was now waking up to the horrors that lay hidden in their food. And they knew Harvey Wiley was helping them to uncover the truth. 
By 1900, Wiley identified an ample list of harmful chemical additives in household food products like formaldehyde and pork, salicylic acid and canned fruit, and borax and country ham. Salicylic acid, by the way, is what it's an acne medication, like what not even medication. It's like for acne products, like salicylic acid. Like you have like the salicylic acid like wipes, but it's also um, the active ingredient in aspirin. The dairy industry relied on formaldehyde to save sour milk. Bakers added aluminum to baking powder and flour. So that's the filler for flour and baking powder. The government is quiet through all of these findings. So Wiley decides to do something drastic to get the government's attention. He already tries his quiet bulletins. He releases like these nice, tidy scientific papers every now and then. And nobody gives a shit. So he was like, all right. I'm going to like just try to shock and scare everybody at this point. So he decides to test chemical additives on humans. The experiment is simple. Get a group of volunteers and feed them three meals a day filled with commonly used preservatives and monitor the effects. Wiley notifies Congress of his trials that he was now calling the hygienic table trials. And he has to basically get Congress's sign off to do this. And But with a name like that, it was unlikely that Congress looked twice at what these trials actually entailed. And to Wiley's surprise, in 1902, Congress funded his trials by giving him $5,000 to get started, which I feel like is a lot for back then. Wiley had the government's blessing and their money to begin his experience. Now he just needed to find the lucky volunteers. So he began putting ads in the paper, recruiting men with a sense of adventure and a strong stomach. That's literally what was in the ad. In return, Wiley would offer free meals and $5 a month. I mean, this sounds fantastic. So Wiley's letterbox was soon overflowing with men from across the country touting their strong stomachs and interest in participating. Eventually, Wiley settled on 12 volunteers who agreed to very strict terms of only eating what Dr. Wiley gave them and submitting to regular physical examinations. And all of this was happening in the lab basement of the USDA where Wiley set up an entire kitchen and hired a pretty prominent chef named Perry. Like He would cook for aristocrats and things like that. So he mm-hmm. like, hired him to be like, okay, you're going to make good food for them, but we're going to spike it with preservatives. Okay. Then Wiley realized he needed to find food that wasn't already adulterated. Mm. So he laboriously talked directly to meat, dairy, and produce farmers and watched their process diligently to ensure that the food was completely pure. Mm -hmm. From there, he laced this pure food with ramped up doses of additives and gave half the men adulterated food and the other half pure food as a control. Mm -hmm. And first, the first additive, he did it like one at a time, was borax. You might know borax as a cleaning product, uh, but more of a cleaning product now. But then back then, it was widely used to preserve food. The way that it works um, in terms of like how it preserves food, borax reacts with proteins in food in a way that improves the elasticity and crispness Hmm. of food. So for leafy greens that look wilted, borax would firm them up again. Same with meat that became mushy and rotten. Borax made the meat look fresh again and more red and vibrant. So it wasn't long until journalists get a whiff of this, what quote unquote, like a mad scientist experimenting in the basement of the USDA. Even though the volunteers were told strictly not to identify themselves or reveal the experiment, a reporter at the Washington Post named George Rothel Brown becomes friendly with the chef, Chef Perry, who subsequently fed him information. 
Soon the papers came out with these whimsical reports of a quirky scientist and his band of merry gastronomic men. <laughs> I feel like that's so fun. Like that's the least worst thing you could be called by a tabloid. <laughs> totally, totally. And the thing is, um, Wiley did not want to reveal the contents of experiment or he just didn't want to say anything until it was done. Like right. any of scientist course, would, of right? Course. Like you don't yeah. really talk about your trial. Yeah. Yeah. So basically the press started to fill in the blanks because Wiley wasn't telling them anything. Mm. So they start to fill in the blanks to suit their imagination. And for lack of a better word, the stories go viral across America. Mm -hmm. Everyone is talking about these 12 young men who are eating poison on behalf of the people of the United States. And that's when the group earns its famous nickname, the Poison Squad. Oh. Have you heard of the Poison Squad? No, but that's also fun. Like, what a cool name. <laughs> but also, it's like, y'all... You know what did you say one that one time you're like if you're gonna point a finger two fingers point three fingers point back back at you or whatever point the back. saying is <laughs> right they're poisoning themselves on behalf of the people of the United States all the people in the United States are already poisoned in some ways that's the whole point <laughs> of this study so exactly yeah. they just think it's fun right although this wasn't exactly the kind of press wiley was looking for mm -hmm. he had to admit that for the first time ever the country was talking about food safety yeah and it wasn't long before the poison squad became the face of progressive movements for pure and safe food the poison squad quickly became the stuff of legend it just started to snowball mm. they became the source for inspiring songs poems cartoons plays like they were just like everywhere in vaudeville yeah i mean it was absolutely fascinating to everybody at the time these men were freely experimenting literally poisoning themselves for change but as the dust settled on this media circus the real results started to trickle in into the usda basement mm. wiley found that as the dose of borax increased, the men began to get more sick, mm. which makes sense. So Wiley came out with an official report of his findings. These once healthy young men were ill from borax poisoning to the point that only half of the men fit made it to the final rounds of testing, with the rest dropping out from illness. The men experienced weight loss, vomiting, headaches, trembling. No one died, yet the borax was keeping them ill at baseline. Before Wiley was advocating for food manufacturers to simply label and disclose what additives they were using so Americans could choose, like I said, but after looking at the men's labs and physiological data, he concluded that there was no safe level of additives. Mm. So that was like what he decided to push forward from then on. Wiley's new published findings was a success, and it spurred a new food safety bill to be put forward to debate in the House and Senate, with Wiley testifying as the lead witness in both. Wiley testified, quote, the consumer is entitled to know the nature of the substances he purchases and to be sure that their food is pure and wholesome. Food manufacturers just go AWOL on Wiley. Like they are labeling him as anti-business. They are bullying him and they're saying, you know, Wiley's trying to control what we do and how we run our business. Mm -hmm. And that's not the American way. Mm. The American way is poisoning people. <laughs> Exactly. Let us poison us how we want. Yeah. Mind your business. <laughs> <laughs> right. Literally. The food industry claimed Dr. Wally seems to thirst deeply for notoriety. And they go on to say things like, oh, he gets off on telling his horror stories and seeing the terror mm. in women's eyes. Right. President Roosevelt, who was known as a progressive lion, was unable to push the legislation forward. Mm. And Roosevelt told Wiley, it will take more than my recommendation to get the law passed. 
I understand there is some very stubborn opposition. There's not much more that I can do. Mm -hmm. The reality is Roosevelt is friends with a lot of these wealthy food manufacturers and likely didn't want to rock the political boat. So just like that, the Food Safety Bill of 1901 is snuffed out. But like any good scientist, this doesn't perturb Wiley from continuing to the fight for food. So he just needs to find a better way to get the word out and probably find some better allies because he was sort of like a lone wolf this entire time, just fighting the, the good fight. So he finds those allies in the power of the budding women's rights mov movement. Women were protectors of the home and their children, and they were the ones buying the food. The men weren't. Yeah. And women absolutely cared about Wiley's findings that came out of the poison squad because it affected them and their children's lives. And women are a force and were a force to be reckoned with, especially the Women's Reform Network. They were a natural ally for Dr. Wiley. Wiley knew that women wanted to buy foods that they could trust were safe, but he also knew they wanted the power to be seen and heard as equals. So he started to speak to women's groups across the U.S. and joined their rallying cry as they joined his for food safety. So it became like the symbio symbiotic relationship. Yeah. I, I had a very strong feeling it was going to go that way because the moment you said like mm -hmm. when they were doing the bill and the people yeah. against him made some comment about like, oh, you're pandering to women's tears or whatever, like you're exploiting right. their you know emotions, like or that whole concept. I was like, what a weird thing to argue because I guarantee you they're, they're going to be the first people who legitimately care and will back the movement. Totally. And you're... You're 100% right. Women were a huge, huge influence in food safety in the U.S. Like I would say without them, I don't think any of these laws would have been passed. Right. Obviously, Wiley had a huge part to play, but he was just one voice. The women gave him a bigger voice. They literally lent their voices to his cause and absorbed pure food as part of their progressive movement. In New Jersey, Wiley met a feisty suffragist named Alice Lackey, who I believe he marries later on in life. I, I, there was like a fun thing of like he had proposed to her like 10 times over a decade. And he, she said no every single time. And finally, she said yes. Uh, he proposed to her every year for that decade. <laughs> yes. And she's like, fine. You've yeah. worn me down. Yeah. So this is when they first meet. So she's mm -hmm. a suffragist, Alex Lackey, who introduces Wiley to an entire network of women who are specifically concerned about food safety. Mm -hmm. Wiley's crusade for food purity becomes this beautiful partnership between him and the women of the United States. Together, they launched a nationwide letter writing campaign in favor of food regulation, targeting the president and Congress. Wiley additionally wrote nationwide that although women can't vote yet, they still have power to initiate change in industries like the food industry and any other that they set their mind to. He was of the mind strongly that these women could accomplish whatever they wanted to and greatly admired the fearlessness among these women groups. Mm -hmm. Then there was Fanny Farmer, who joined the pure food movement. Fanny Farmer was a leader in a new field called domestic science and was one of the most popular cookbook authors in the United States. Whoa. I was like, I love this. She's got the name for That's it, so too. Cool. That's some Food Network Dude. celebrity name-ish. Yeah, Fanny Farmer. Love yes. Her. I also really love, love the name Fanny. <laughs> her devoted audience of mothers and wives listened carefully when she spoke on pure food safety. So she was like 
an influencer, a food influencer. She educated her readers through her books about the chemistry and nutritional value of food and dangerous chemical additives like borax, salicylic acid, and potassium chromate. list goes on. But outside of that also, women can now buy chemistry sets mm. and were encouraged to buy prussic acid to test their food products at home, wow. which is kind of wild. Yeah. yeah. Like women were just like leading the charge in this. Eventually, the pure food movement snowballed into something the food manufacturers could no longer ignore. The first person to see the pure food movement as an opportunity rather than a challenge was the food titan Henry J. Hines of Ketchup. He felt that this was only the beginning of a massive overhaul of the food industry. Mm -hmm. Hines saw a genuine need for change, and he saw that it could be an advantage of pure food branding. What sparked this change in mindset for Hines was Ketchup. The Heinz brand went back to the drawing board and reinvented the formula for ketchup, which aligned with pure food. Mm. So instead of all of the chemical disgusting additives, they added more vinegar, which made the ketchup shelf stable and slightly more acidic. The brand felt this new ketchup was actually tastier, and that's how they marketed it. I think the whole industry was afraid of change because like, we've just been doing this for so long. Mm. Now they it might cost more money or more time to figure out a new method, but it after you change it, you probably don't have to change it forever because I'm pretty sure this is the same recipe since all the way back then, right? The advertising and label had the word pure written all over it. They Anytime they could write pure on the Heinz ketchup label, it was there. And they described the process of making and packaging ketchup as done by maidens in crisp white uniforms. <laughs> I know that is not fully true, <laughs> but true. it's a cute marketing scheme. Correct. I'm going to go grab a ketchup bottle. And while you talk, I am going to look okay. at the ingredients and see. <laughs> go for it. It all played into what the consumer desired now, which is food that was pure and made in sanitary conditions. Although Wiley took a detour to add politician to his long list of skills, the Poison Squad experiments never stopped. And in 1905, his team was ready to publish another round of results. This time, the research focused on another very common food preservative, salicylic acid, a.k.a. aspirin, a.k.a. what's in common acne medications. Salicylic acid was popular because it's an antioxidant, meaning it kept food deoxygenated. Like when an avocado goes black, it would basically prevent all that from happening. And since it's acidic, it kills bacteria, which slows down the food going bad. So at the turn of the century, the average bottle of wine or beer contained nearly two grams of salicylic acid. The men of the poison squad experienced hunger, even though they were eating the same amount. And they all had GI issues because salicylic acid is an acid, so it is corrosive to the stomach. And aspirin is part of the NSAID class of drugs. So and when I say NSAIDs, I mean aspirin, um, ibuprofen, Motrin, Advil, all that kind of good stuff. They all, if you'll notice on the instructions for your ibuprofen or Motrin, it tells you to take it after eating something because taking it on an empty stomach will leave your stomach wide open to the acidic breakdown of the drug. Mm. So if you keep taking it without other food to basically cushion it, you can develop stomach ulcers. Ugh. So what these men were experiencing, and I'm sure many other Americans were 
bleeding of the GI tract mm -hmm. because this isn't 81 milligrams of aspirin or 200 milligrams of your ibuprofen, which is the standard dose. This is two grams. If you were to drink an entire bottle of wine or just have a beer or two, which mm -hmm. let's be honest, like you share a bottle of wine with friends, you drink a beer or two in a night. Like yeah. that's that. And these people are probably doing this multiple times a week, you know, or multiple times a month. That's enough to right. like develop stomach ulcers. Once again, Wiley's research echoed across the nation, angered food industry titans, but nothing changed. However, it was 1905, and women could now vote in some Western states. Roosevelt wasn't stupid. He knew it was only a matter of time before all women would be able to get to vote. And their vote would hold significant power as a moral voice of change for the United States. I will pause there. Mm -hmm. To see if the ingredients. Mean. Yeah. So I'm I'm lucky. I was hoping it would be a Heinz ketchup bottle, and it is in fact Heinz. It's not great value or something else. And um, on the back label, there's a little saying or a caption that says, "For over 150 years, only Heinz has made the thick, rich ketchup America loves from only the best red ripe tomatoes. Nothing else tastes like Heinz." In the ingredients. We have tomato concentrate from red ripe tomatoes. <laughs> I like the speci specificity. Okay. It has to be ripe, ripe tomatoes. Um, yes. Distilled vinegar. So there's the vinegar. High fructose corn syrup, corn syrup, salt, spice, onion powder, and natural flavoring. So the corn syrup situation remains. Some of the high fructose corn syrup. Okay. But I don't think that's a secret. I don't think that's something that is... It's not toxic. Trying to be hidden. Let's say. Yeah, it's not toxic. Yeah, it's not. No. A, it's not the additives that you're talking about, like borax or whatever. No. But um, that's what's in no. it. But yeah, I think a lot of people already know. Like, uh, ketchup does have a lot of salt and a lot of sugar. There's 180 milligrams yeah. of sodium. That's eight mm percent. -hmm. Um, in one bottle, or eight percent per serving. There's 53 mm -hmm. th servings in this container, <laughs> and there is four grams of sugar including four grams of added lot. sugar. So, yeah, 7%. Dang. It's a lot of sugar. Whew. So there you go. That is a lot of sugar. Mm -hmm. All right. So I guess it really hasn't changed in 150 years. Great. Truly. It's the same batch from 150 years ago. <laughs> That's how good it is at staying fresh. <laughs> that shelf life. Yeah. That shelf life is for 3,000 years. <laughs> well, that made me wonder. I was like, they write in there uh, the same recipe for 150 years. Mm -hmm. Do they have to replace that label every single year? Oh. It's been the same recipe for 152 years, 153. Oh, <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, it. I bought this last year. So okay. let me. This is 1905, maybe? What's yeah, 1905. I mean, that's already incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to do math to know that. That was only okay. So if you're saying 95. That was only 117 years ago. I guess like they're basing it off like when they first made ketchup. Period. But I feel like it should be based off their new recipe. Yeah, they <laughs> straight. There should be an asterisk. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and an asterisk next to the red ripe tomatoes because I'm sure it ain't red ripe. <laughs> I'm sure it's not red, nor ripe, or a tomato. I'm just kidding. No, exactly. <laughs> kidding, kidding. We're not trying to slander. I'm sure they're tomatoes Sorry, in Heinz. some form. Yes, women can now vote, or they will be on the way to vote. Mm -hmm. So 
essentially, in light of that, Roosevelt can, can see the writing on the wall. And he's like, all right, eventually, I don't know when, but women, all women are going to be able to vote. So I need to, if I want to get reelected slash if I want to like look good as a president, mm-hmm. I need to be on board with this. Yeah. So at, the end, at his end of the year message to Congress in 1905, Roosevelt, for the first time ever, publicly announced his support for a, for a food drug law. Hmm. Then the following year, on February 10th, 1906, Wiley, along with the United States, woke to shocking headlines about a scandal in the meatpacking industry. Ugh. Upton Sinclair published a new book called The Jungle, yeah. which revealed the horrifyingly filthy conditions of Chicago's largest meat factories. Megan, have you read this book? No, but learned plenty about it in environmental yeah, science yeah. classes growing up. And I, I'm, in my head, I'm like, Wiley's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Up in Sinclair. I've been shouting this from the rooftops for years. Yeah. He's like, when I was your age. <laughs> yeah, he's he's like the angry man on the lawn. Yeah. Get off my lawn. Okay. Yeah. Sinclair spent, I didn't know this part, but it makes mm-hmm. sense. Sinclair spent two months working undercover. I yes. thought he just kind of like went there and no. looked, but yeah. And I think that that's probably what made it a little bit more, you know, scandalous fun to watch like oh yeah this person infiltrated the system instead of like did an actual unbiased lab study with a control right this is like in the wild just caught them red-handed sure Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah sinclair spent two months working undercover to document the inhumane practices and unsanitary conditions for workers in chicago's meat industry the reality was stomach churning mm-hmm. rat infestation infestations specifically rats wandering around that accidentally fall into the meat grinder mm. meat that was contaminated with disease and rotting carcasses even a few more than a few human appendages that made its way into the packaged meat that was then sold on grocery store shelves. Mm. Delicious. <laughs> yummy. <laughs> yummy. 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 <laughs> Scrummy. Sinclair's book was meant to shed light on workers' rights, but as a byproduct, it also shed light on food safety practices. If at first just women and Wiley were concerned about food safety, now pretty much everyone in America was alarmed. Why? Because Americans love their meat. They just they do. do. <laughs> they do. It's a fact, even today. I'm thinking of like a sketch bit where yeah. know, Upton Sinclair, the jungle just drops, food regulation changes, and so you see some random consumer you know they buy the new meat and they're like you know it's just not the same <laughs> like like the <laughs> person the consumer misses right. that that mystery Nasty, meat human rat meat. combination Woo! flesh and that just tickles my fancy <laughs> Ooh, i love that that's, that's gonna be the title of the episode mystery meat <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yeah yeah let's do that i like that good job megan okay uh <laughs> The conditions of meat factories were abysmal, and the owners knew it and tried to hide everything. When inspectors would come to check the cows for tuberculosis, people would distract the inspector and push through the TB cows while the inspector wasn't looking. Mm. The walls were caked with rotting meat that had dried over with blood spatter. The entire factory was a petri dish crawling with bacteria, and the meat itself was moldy. 
But when it looks like that, you simply dipped the meat in a tub of borax and tossed it back in to be delivered to the stores. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it crispy again. It's so gross. <laughs> crispy, yeah. crispy and lively. It was a horrifying snapshot of what the food industry had gotten away with for years and what happens when an industry is not properly regulated. In a famous quote by Sinclair about his book, he says, quote, I aim for the public's heart and by accident, I hit in the stomach. <laughs> Some people credit Sinclair as the person who really opened America's eyes to what was actually in their food, but I think that's unfair. The difference between Wiley and Sinclair is Wiley tried to educate the public as a scientist would through experiments and data. While Sinclair went for the literal gut punch, he went by the method of shock, horror, and graphicness. Yeah, and that always wins, but that's not necessarily right. I 100% agree. And that's exactly what it is. Sinclair's book, in my eyes, essentially confirmed the swirling rumors that were set out by Wiley and his poison squad. Mm -hmm. It's one of those very human things where you hear a horrible truth, but don't want to believe it until it hits you right in the face, you know? Right, right. And honestly, like, I don't think that, I don't think that, you it, like they both go hand in hand essentially like you can't have one without the other i i do think both things had to have happened in order to, for ultimately the laws to take place but essentially sinclair can shock and scare people all day long but you mm -hmm. if you don't have the hard evidence and data to support it basically uh wiley brought the authority figure he had the credibility as a doctor he right. was doing the hard evidence and data and numbers to support that this isn't just a scary story it's real Right. It's Sinclair brought the public opinion, the public outrage. The public was outraged. And President Roosevelt was also in that same bucket. The jungle confirmed his own suspicions about canned meat that went all the way back to his time, the Spanish-American War. The public itself, they felt duped and they questioned if they were cannibals now because they knew that some human parts were in this meat that they were eating. So the letters came flooding in to the White House demanding changes. So Roosevelt sent out his own team to investigate the conditions at these meatpacking houses. And the team reported back that whatever Sinclair wrote in his book is exactly what's going on. However, Sinclair was there for two months. So, of course, Roosevelt's team didn't see all of the nitty gritty of what was going on. But they did see this horrifying gem. While Roosevelt's team was at one of the meat factories they see a cow fall into one of the latrines that the workers used. The workers saw what? the cow, pulled it out, butchered it on the spot, and sent the meat off. To the what? team's horror, they did not wash the cow first. My goodness. Also, why is the cow so close to a human latrine? But, it, I mean, that's a great question. Moot, it's a moot great point question. because clearly they were already doing terrible butchering practices. So Yeah. Like, mm. it's all gross. It's just all kinds mm. of levels of gross. Mm -hmm. The way that they did it gave the clear impression that this has happened many times before. Like, just like the mm. methodicalness of like, oh, this happened. Like, it's happened again. Like, stu mm -hmm. whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. The summary of the president's report couldn't hit the New York Times fast enough and confirmed what Wiley had been telling everyone this entire time. Mm. <laughs> He's just like, God damn it, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I told you. Yeah. At this time, Wiley is also getting a flood of telegrams and letters of support, though. He, he knows he needs to ride this wave of momentum and not give up. I think there's like – they don't say it explicitly, but there's like an undertone of maybe him feeling exasperated and not mm. feeling heard. Yeah. Everyone's listening to other people for things that he's already been saying this whole time. Right, right. But 
he decides, like, let me just give it one more try at Capitol Hill to get this pure food bill into law. Like, he's mm. like, this public outrage is great, but it's not going to do anything if we don't have actual legislative change, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, Upton Sinclair is not going to do that, right? Yeah. Upton Sinclair is just going to profit off that book. <laughs> 100%. And, and to go back to Upton Sinclair, the whole purpose of him writing The Jungle was not to expose the poor food safety. He was exposing the inhumane worker working practices mm-hmm. of yep. the meat factories it just yeah. had the second byproduct effect of shutting light on the food industry right so for two days straight wiley testified against the titans of the food industry and before congress this second time around that wiley testified was different a lot of time had passed since the first time he testified he was more than a scientist now he was an orator mm. who spoke at rallies and conferences around the country he led alongside some of the biggest progressive women's groups in the nation all of that developed his public speaking skills for which he had a natural knack for he was a showman and he brought all of that theater to capitol hill a journalist in the courtroom said he was a theatrical spectacle who dominated the room he knew he could command everyone's attention, and so he did. Roosevelt was sick and tired of the stalling by Congress and the whinings of the food industry. He made it clear that he wanted legislation on his de- desk ASAP, and if they didn't produce a bill, he threatened to release the full report of what the team found in Chicago. Mm. Finally, Congress created the Meat Inspection Act. It was a fantastic step forward, but it was just meat. Mm. So what about food in general? Mm-hmm. Congress at this point kind of knew the momentum of the pure food movement was unstoppable. So after the Meat Inspection Act came the Food and Drug Act, which both pass. Finally, on June 30th, 1906, Roosevelt officially signs both into law. And these two laws are the very first consumer protection laws in United States history. In a way, it was bittersweet for Wiley because it only took four months post-Sinclair's The Jungle for these laws to be passed for what Wiley was working towards for nearly 25 years. Yeah. But I will say, Wiley walked so that Sinclair could run. That's true. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And this is kind of what I was saying earlier. The two went hand in hand and needed one another to happen for the laws to pass because, as I said, Wiley brings in the hard evidence and credibility as an accomplished scientist. Sinclair can shock and scare all day, but without the hard data mm-hmm. with and without the hard data from the Poison Squad trials, people would have thought it was just that, a scary story that they didn't need to put any more attention to. Right. And the public knew that as well. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, I'm sure I know I've been kind of like digging on Sinclair and just like how it works with scare tactics and stuff to get national outrage. But the reality is that Wiley in that first round of his poison, uh, poison patrol, what are they called? Poison pals? (laughs) Poison squad. Poison squad. Yeah. with the first public interest in the poison squad, that definitely is a seed that's planted, right? So I'm sure there's national interest that slowly grew over time up to when the jungle was officially released since Wiley made headlines as like the group that was intentionally poisoning themselves. So I'm sure it was just something that bred very slowly over time, but it did need that, that catalyst to, to bring Mm -hmm. it over the edge. Yeah. Which is sucky. And good. I don't know. It's just, it is what it is. Like, I honestly feel like if The Jungle had just come out without without any of Wiley's work, mm-hmm. I think it would have still shocked the nation, but I feel like it wouldn't have had a lasting impact. It would, it would be kind of like a trend. Like, oh right. my God, like right. this crazy thing happened, and then it would have fizzled out. Right, right. Give it 
five months time and then it's like we're moving on to the next exactly yeah and the public knew that wiley was the big prominent figure in this as well because the newspapers call the pure food and drug act dr wiley's law so he Mm. is getting his credit that he deserves it was a momentous occasion in history because it was the first time the government was saying yes we are here to protect you Mm -hmm. but passing a bill doesn't solve anything you have to now enforce it so Wiley had to come up with new food safety standards for the industry to comply to. So he continued his results from the Poison Squad, which eventually banned the use of formaldehyde, as well as other things as well. This kind of ends on a sad note, but <laughs> uh, he, a lot of people feel like he was in over his head a little bit. Like after mm. everything got passed, he kind of just starts going after everybody. Like I don't think he sees it this way, but other people are just kind of like, Dude, give it a rest. Like you're, he just keeps going on these crusades one after right. the other and doesn't yeah. know when or how to draw the line. Yeah. So he goes after Coca-Cola because mm. they have so much caffeine. Like it's insane amount of caffeine in their drinks. Mm-hmm. After they got rid of cocaine, they're right. like, how do we supplant this? Just put a shit ton of caffeine in it. Yeah. But it's marketing towards children. Right. And that's also unsafe. So he cracks down on them and they go to court mm-hmm. and – I just want to read the the court thing and then you can talk. So okay. on March 11th, 1911, the trial started. It's United States v. 40 barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola. <laughs> and it immediately <laughs> makes headlines. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he's changed personality or anything. I think he was someone who was always trying to do the good fight, um, try and yeah. genuinely cared for what we're eating, what we're consuming. And I do think it's just a product of when you have such a momentous win with the meat packing industry and having mm-hmm. a law, it it's definitely motivational. Like, of course, you're like, well, you know, yes. this was proof that all this hard work did incur change. So why not keep going? And I think what's a shame there is that not everyone's built that way. So I can see him then going mm-hmm. for the next, you know, conglomerate, Coca-Cola, whatever. Right. <laughs> I think for other people, putting all their energy into one movement is enough for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's truly mm-hmm. what it comes down to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure oh, well. it's something he enjoyed. Uh, but it's tough because it's like you don't know if he's going to get as much satisfaction from pursuing whatever his next fight is because you know then you don't have as much backing yeah Yeah. exactly and eventually that's what ended up happening and it's this whole coca-cola situation was a david versus goliath and at i like i said at this point he's not very well liked and there's Mm -hmm. even a rumor that the agricultural industry encouraged wiley to take on this case because they thought it would destroy him so you can Mm. kind of that kind of is like a temperature check of how the public felt about him and how government felt about him but he was still very much loved and respected he ended up having to like step down from his role at the usda and he, and he still kept on doing the good fight and worked on his own capacity for, till he was 86 when which is when he died mm-hmm. but the thing is like you can never forget the work that he did he never stopped working on his passion and his legacy is obviously still with us today like i said at the beginning i can safely go to the food store grocery store and know that and trust I'm not going to get sick. And that's simple as that. Like that is his legacy. We we know that what we're eating is made, processed, packaged in sanitary conditions. It's mm-hmm. simple yet powerful. And that was thanks to Dr. Harvey Wiley. And that's yeah. the story of the Poison Squad. Yeah, really interesting. I've never heard of Dr. Harvey Wiley before this. So I'm glad to know his name now and his story and his journey. I think what my question is, while now we are we can feel certain 
that our food is now produced in sanitary conditions to a point. Asterisks. There's asterisks, right? The bill that was passed by Wiley, how much did that actually inspire companies to change for the good or just change in a way where it's like, well, we can't use borax anymore. So let's look into other things, preservatives, chemicals, synthetic things that we can um, create again, not to get around this, but to ensure that we're still giving a quote unquote fresh product without violating yeah. that law. You know, do you get what I'm saying? I'm so bad oh, with oh, words. 100%. <laughs> no, no. I and, and that's kind of what I was, even while writing that, I was like, there's a massive asterisk because it's a new generation of problems. You know, mm-hmm. it may not be the problems that Wiley was encountering back in 1906, but here in like the late 2000s, not late, but like 2000s onwards to now, we have our own set of food issues. Like there was a whole thing with pesticides and non-GMO. Like we have our own whole scale of things. And even like the meatpacking, when you were saying like, if someone like like a regular schmegler like us, like went to a meatpacking industry and saw how meat was butchered, I know they have documentaries on this, right? Yeah. Of people exposing the meat industry even today and saying like, mm-hmm. this is disgusting. Like this is yeah. like, horrible how they're doing this. But is it disgusting to us or is it like we don't really know the actual like data or scientific evidence? Like what does that even mean? Like it looks a certain way, but what is it actually producing bad standards? It might, you know, Mm -hmm. like we we have our own set of issues that I feel like maybe the 1906 act has Mm -hmm. to be essentially – what do you call it, updated to today's standards. Right. And, you know, I want to make clear that I – I – have no opinion in terms of what our you know food standards are today. I don't I don't have opinion whether it's good or bad. It's more of just that yeah. that contemplativeness of every time we have a public uproar about the food industry. I think that maybe there are things that are positive that do change, but I I, I just yeah. feel like it is in within human nature within the the science that we put towards manufacturing food and stuff that we're just always going to adapt. And so while we might be out with one thing, I think there's a natural tendency to adapt and be like, okay, well, again, like how can we how can we improve this process? But that improvement of the process means bringing in this novel uh, synthetic mm-hmm. additive, you know, or, or something, something Absolutely. different. And I just think it's, um, I, that's why I'm like, it's just fascinating. That's all. That's my opinion. I'm like, I think mm-hmm. it's a very fascinating mm-hmm. thing. I don't, I will, I eat anything. <laughs> so I'll eat fast food. Like I don't, I'm, I'm not someone who is bothered knowing that when I go and eat McDonald's, I'm eating some sort of mystery meat, whatever. Like I'm actually very okay with all that, but I just think it's, it's an I always find it as an interesting fight where you get these books every once in a while that are super um, like scandalous and yeah. like, people talk about it yeah. and like we get upset like, you know, AP Environmental Science for a lot of us was watching freaking mm-hmm. what's the Michael Pollan movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think we should always be interested yeah. in what we're consuming. But I'm also like we cannot fight ourselves who are so desperate to continue to adapt at the same time. Does that make sense? I agree. No, it completely makes sense. And I think something that you're potentially also hinting at that I'm just going to come out and say, and it's something that was happening even then, like you were saying in the episode, history repeats itself. And that we have seen now, like that's like, like you're saying, like a new documentary will come out or a book will come out about our new age food issues or, you know, dilemmas, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Mm-hmm. And 
the thing is, like back then in 1906, you said it perfectly. Like, okay, Dr. Riley's coming out with all these data about, oh, the food is terrible, it's nasty. But the regular public is like, okay, I understand that, but what am I supposed to do about it? I don't know where else to get my food from. And I think that's also another issue of today where people will come out with these documentaries and be like, oh, we should all be vegetarian or we should all be vegan. Mm -hmm. But that's not accessible to everybody. Like not every single person in the United States uh, can pay for higher cost or premium food products or quality, more quality food products that are more farm fresh or farm source. Like sometimes McDonald's is like the only option that is feasible. Like you do get more bang for your buck for these more fast food options. They might not be the healthiest, but if you're just trying to put food on the table at that point, like you don't care, right? If you're going to put out all these documentaries, you need to also offer a solution, which I think is kind of what was different about Wiley. Like he was preaching it, but he was also practicing it. He was trying to enact change. And I didn't get into this because it's already so long, Mm -hmm. but he did like go to all these produce uh, companies and he, he himself made sure that all of that was unadulterated. He took it all off the shelves and replaced it with better food products. Like he ensured it to that level. Like we need someone like that to ensure it to that level for all of the foods at all food costs and, um, food levels. Yeah. That's all. (laughs) Okay. That was a great episode. All right. Great episode. Great episode. Thank you, Harini, for teaching us about Dr. Harvey Wiley. And, um, all right. Uh, my antidote. Oh, is that my mom and sister are coming to visit this weekend and my aunt and uncle from Malaysia will be joining in the next couple of days as well. So it'll be cool to see family I haven't seen in a long time, aka my aunt and uncle because they're coming from Malaysia. And then, of course, it's just always nice to see my mom and sister. Cool. Okay. Uh, My antidote is... I guess seeing Medina, I saw like a really close friend of mine last night who I actually haven't seen in a little bit, but we got to have like really good just one-on-one time last night. And we were talking about it earlier. It was just a very spontaneous night and it was fun and just good catching up with a good friend after a while. And we talked about everything and anything over the sun, just like two good old friends should do Yeah, with good food. Excellent. How do you want to exit? Um, don't <laughs> risk it. Oh my God. Don't even risk it for the actual biscuit. Cause you don't know what's going to be in it. <laughs> don't risk it for that, uh, 1900s, early 1900s biscuit. <laughs> exactly. Save <Alrighty>. yourself. <laughs> Bye. Bye.